Well, today I want to continue our series on Remarkable. We're going through the book of Mark. And I want to start out with an illustration from my own life. So uh, if you know anything about me, that uh, one of my biggest weaknesses on my body is my eyes. Okay? Uh, I can't see very well. Turns out it's genetics. Uh, I just got a letter this week from Timothy Ball Elementary School saying that my son probably needs glasses. Okay? So if you take out my glasses, I could barely make out first row. Second row, I don't even know. You're just, it's just a blur. It's just like a smudge. Okay? Um, so around ele- uh, middle school, that's where my eyes start to really decay. But because it happened gradually, I did not notice. I just know bit by bit, I couldn't see the blackboard anymore. You know, as an Asian kid, I want to get good grades. I want to take notes. So I was miserable trying to take notes. I keep trying to copy notes from my neighbors, and they got super annoyed. They were like covering their nose or their elbows. And I'm just like, come on, man. I'm not copying the test score. I just want to know the notes. For some reason, I never told my parents. I never told my teachers. For years, I went through life without being able to really see, okay? Thank God I wasn't driving back then, right? Well, one day my parents noticed, they took me to the eye doctor, and I got some new glasses. Now, the moment I got these new glasses, I still remember that experience. When I saw through these new lenses, okay, now I can see clearly for the first time, right? My experience was weird. It was bizarre. It was uncomfortable, and I felt like the world was wrong, okay? The world felt curved. It was just weird. It felt so uncomfortable. Here's the deal. After... A period of adjustment, after a couple hours of adjustment, all of a sudden, I realized I could see clearly. I could see the leaves. I could see the stoplights. I could see the board. I could see features on people's faces. I'm like, oh, you do have eyes. You do have nose. (laughs) And I wondered how for years was I living in such blindness? How did I put up with that? How do I put up with just seeing haze? And the reason for that is because my eyes decay gradually. Bit by bit, I was losing my sight, and I didn't even notice. So what are we talking about that for? So when God created the world, he made the world according to his character, according to his goodness, to his majesty, his beauty, his power. The world reflect God. But since sin has entered into the world, man's vision of the world, man's view on reality of the world has been decaying. And because this might be happening gradually, bit and bit by bit, we don't notice, okay? Over generations, we have lost our perspective on what reality is supposed to look like. Now, it sounds like this, these are big, uh, high-level topics, uh, big theoretical issues, theological issues. It's actually very, very practical, okay? It's practical as if, if I try to drive on Route 65 or city of Chicago without my glasses, I can guarantee my car will not be one piece when I come home, okay? <laughs> Just like I would never let my kids drive without their glasses when they're old enough, obviously. I would never let my kids live life with a clear, without a clear view on reality. For example... Okay, if my kid, my son says, I want to get married, I want to be like, what is your understanding of what marriage is about? Before I'm going to let you get married, I'm going to let you, I'm going to make sure you have clarity on, on how God sees marriage. Okay, if my son says, you know, I want to be a leader. Well, hold, hold, hold up. Son, what does a leader mean to you? I want to make sure your definition of leadership matches God's view on leadership. Well, I want to go and pick this career because it's going to make me a lot of money and blah, blah, blah. Wait, wait, time out. 
What is your view on wealth? I want to make sure your perspective on wealth matches God's perspective on wealth and success. This is very, very practical. Life is hard enough. If you want to navigate through life successfully, you need to be able to see clearly. Amen? See, for me, this is not about condemning people. Okay? When my parents said, son, you are basically blind. I'm going to give you a pair of glasses. That's not condemnation. That's helping me. So I don't have to copy notes, steal notes from my neighbors anymore. I can see the board by myself, okay? So this is not about judgment. This is about helping and loving people to have clarity. In Mark chapter 10 today, Jesus came to bring us clarity on some very important issues that we might have lost the true meaning of. Jesus is going to address marriage and divorce, controversial subject. He's going to address what does it mean to be childlike. He's going to address what does it mean to be rich. He's going to address suffering, leadership, and finally, my favorite subject, desperation. Throughout these individual issues, I want to address the status quo understanding how the world sees these issues. I want to address the clarity that Jesus brings to these specific issues. And I want to ask you a very personal question, okay, for you to consider and say, maybe I have kind of got blurred on this issue. I might need to refine and update my prescription so once again I can see clearly. Amen? Amen. All right. So we're going to go to marriage and divorce. Mark chapter 10. I'm not going to read all the verses. There's a lot here. I want to address just a few verses to illustrate the point I want to make. So verse 2, this is verse 2, I believe, Mark chapter 10. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap Jesus with this question, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? You know this issue is controversial because Pharisees are using this as a trap. Okay, a trap question means doesn't matter which way you answer, you're going to offend somebody. Okay. Jesus answered them with a question, what did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why he leaves his father, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Okay. The status quo understanding of marriage is very much like today. Marriage is seen as transactional. That means, marriage means what you can get out from it. Okay. Think about the transaction you go when you go buy some bread from a store. Okay, you take the bread, you examine the bread, the bread looks pretty good, it's not moldy. You look at the price, pretty good. You go to the shopkeeper, you give him the money. The shopkeeper's happy because he keeps the money. You're happy because you got the bread. It's what you can get from it, okay? That's transactional. I'm not knocking transaction. Transaction is important for capitalism. I get it. But the question is, should marriage be transactional? Okay? The Pharisee told Jesus, Moses made allotment for marriage to be dissolved with a written notice. Okay, kind of like you're taking the bread back with a receipt. A written notice, just make sure you have the receipt with you. It's transactional. In today's world, I would say in American culture, our view of marriage is more transactional than ever. Some of the most common reasons for people to dissolve the marriage for divorce, at least from my perspective, is not infidelity or abuse, is that they say it no longer makes me happy. Or they can't satisfy me anymore. Or we just grew apart. Or we just want different things. In essence, marriage, this marriage no longer makes me feel good anymore. 
It's transactional. Therefore, it should be dissolved. But look at what Jesus said. Moses did it as a concession to your hard heart. Okay? Concession means it's a compromise. It's not the best. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a pair of glasses. I'm going to give you, give you some clarity right now to see how things were created from the beginning, how it's supposed to look like. Here's the original intent. The two are united into one, and what God puts together, we all not to separate. In other words, marriage to God is not transactional, but it's covenantal. Let me make the comparison. I want to be very clear about this. A simple way to think about this. Transactional is about what you can get out of this relationship. Covenantal is about what you give into this relationship. Now, for example, aren't you glad our relationship with God through the cross is not transactional but covenantal? You know, in Chinese, when you talk about the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Chinese version is not testament. It's the old covenant and the new covenant. So when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's coming out of the new covenant. We have a covenantal relationship with God. Aren't you glad God is not looking at his relationship with Andrew and says, hmm, what am I going to get out of Andrew today? What can Andrew do for me today? There's nothing I can do for God. But God's looking at Andrew and you. He's saying, how can I bless you today? Andrew really needs some help. I'm going to send Jesus, my son, to die on the cross for him. That's what it means to be covenantal. For those who are veterans of marriage class, you guys know about this book, Sacred Romance. It has a phrase in there that haunted me for years. It says the purpose of marriage is to not to make you happy, but to make you holy. In other words, if you keep looking for that perfect person who's going to make your dreams come true, you're going to go from person to person, marriage to marriage, finding flaw with everybody else but yourself. But if you recognize marriage is really ultimately covenantal, it's about purifying and consecrating you that when problems and issue comes up, you see this as an opportunity for you to give of yourself to the other person, for you to purify yourself. Now, this was basically my story. I didn't get married until I was almost 33 years old. I wanted to get married at 23 years old. So over those 10 years, the Lord got to work on my heart and this definition of the purpose of marriage. Despite being born basically in the church my whole life, I'm a pastor's kid, I got the definition that the purpose of marriage completely wrong. I bought into the world's version of marriage. I thought marriage was all about finding the best girl with the best looks, with the best personality, who can best serve me, who can make me feel the best. Now, I would never admit that, but that's how I felt. Now, what happens, every girl I met, doesn't matter how good they are at first, there was that initial infatuation. Eventually, either I got on their nerve or they got on my nerves, okay? There was always something wrong. I would meet a great girl, great girl. But, you know, after a while, I'm like, she's just not Chinese enough for me. You know, she doesn't appreciate my heritage. <laughs> then I would meet another super sweet girl. But this girl, she's too Chinese. She's fresh off the boat, like barely speak English. I'm like, I can't handle it, okay? And I'll meet another awesome girl, and she just doesn't like Chinese food. I'm like, I need more Chinese food in my life, right? Good Chinese food. And I'll meet a different girl, and all she eats is Chinese food. I'm like, no, where's my Chick-fil-A and Taco Bell, okay? There's always something wrong. You guys think I'm joking? I'm 75% joking. In my late 20s, I met this one girl, Debbie Wong. Now, ah, she was at first, too late. Um, 
the funny thing with in other girls I've dated, there was an initial infatuation and then all the frustration came out, right? Well, with Debbie, it was like annoyance at first sight. She was so annoying to me. I was so annoyed at her. Somehow we end up dating, but the annoyance level never let up. It just kept going higher and higher and higher, okay? For six years, we were dating on and off, basically because I didn't understand the purpose of marriage. I kept trying to fit Debbie into this box, okay, that will satisfy me, that will make me happy, of someone who's worthy to become my wife to make me happy because I felt like I deserved it. And now I can say I'm not ashamed about it anymore, but that's really how I felt. So, obviously, this wasn't working. We were making each other miserable. I was making her miserable. And one day, with the counsel of some really wise people in my life, I'm going to talk about that later, I decided that I need to change my approach. So instead of trying to f- get her to fulfill my needs, manipulate her, blah, 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 get her to fulfill my needs, I am going to take that energy and focus on her needs. Okay? Sounds really simple and obvious now, right? Marriage class, 4 o'clock. But at the time... <laughs> At the time, it was revolutionary for me. It was completely different. You know, when I put on those glasses the first time, it felt wrong. It felt twisted. It felt, like, uncomfortable. That's how it felt. It was so weird for me. Because I wasn't just trying to change a behavior, right? I wasn't just trying to be a nice guy for, like, a couple days. I was fundamentally trying to change the way I thought about marriage. Changing my paradigm about marriage. So I'll give you an example. You know, I used to, I'm not embarrassed anymore, but I used to get super frustrated at Debbie when we're dating. When she couldn't encourage me with these perfectly timed prophetic words, just hit the words that really hit my heart. Okay? I used to be annoyed at her for that. So instead, when I get annoyed, I still get annoyed, I need to twist the energy on and say, well, forget it. How can I pursue her love language? How can I discover her language and, and pursue her instead? Okay, it turns out her love language is like every single one of them. Okay? It's true. So, again, obviously, that was one of the hardest things i ever done. I was terrible at it. Uh, I made tons of mistakes. But when I kept going at changing this perspective, working at this perspective, okay, our relationship bit by bit began to change. I wouldn't even say our relationship changed. I start to change bit by bit. Now, if you have never done this before, if you have the wrong perspective of marriage, I urge you to try what I'm talking about. Because what happened was, for the first time in my life, I felt a degree of satisfaction and fulfillment I've never felt before. It was contrary. It's weird. It's a paradox. The less I pursue my own desire and more I pursue her desire, the more fulfilled I got. How does that work? But that's God's principle. When my, when my heart starts to change, our relationship starts to change. For the first time in my life, I was living with the clarity that Jesus wanted to bring to us about marriage. Covenantal relationship focused on the good of the other person. Paul says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. I mean, Paul might as well drop a bomb on us. Do you know how much Christ loved the church? That's his command for us. Here's the deal. Jesus understands marriage is tough. We understand marriage is tough. I grew up in the church and I had no clue the original purpose of marriage. And none of us is perfect, okay? This is not about condemning you. When we make a mistake, we ask God to forgive us. We learn from it and we move forward. But here's my question. Can we activate, if you're married today, can you activate this vision of marriage for yourself today? And more importantly, can we teach the clarity of marriage to the next generation You see, marriage is a foundational ministry for us, okay? Pastor Jerry, 
Marriage class, 4 p.m. It's a foundational ministry to us at Living Stones because marriage is a foundation to your society. If you want a solid society, you have covenantal marriages. You want a flaky society, have transactional marriage. That's how society works. So here's my question for you today. Here's the personal question. If you are married, very simple, is your focus on your happiness or your spouse's happiness? And if you are not married and you want to be married, I'm going to ask you this. Are you praying for that special someone who's going to fulfill all your dreams, make all your dreams come true? Or are you praying for that special someone that you can give your life to? Amen? All right, I'm going to get to the next subject, the idea of being childlike. Verse 13. One day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch them and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let these children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Here's the key. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arm, placed his hands on their head, and blessed them. Now, the Bible is very clear that we need to honor and respect our elders, right? But here, Jesus is making a powerful point that these kids have some special attributes about them that makes them uh, exceptional to the kingdom of God. So I got young kids myself. I have four kids from the range of nine to one and a half. And the other day, they were just being kids. They're just being kids. Now I'm looking at these kids creating a mess. I'm thinking, these kids? What's so special about these kids that God will say they are exceptional for the kingdom of God? Could it possibly be their inherent selfishness? My, 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 my. That's my pillow. That's my toy. Maybe their inherent lack of attention span. Squirrel, TV, brush my teeth. What am I doing? Who called me? What's going on? How about this one? Their inability to remember and obey. Asian household, you come to my house, you take off your shoes. My kids know this since they were born, okay? My kids still come home, wear their shoes all over the place. I'm like, hundreds of times, take off your shoes first. Don't you know you're Asian? Come on. <laughs> then, so I'm wondering, what makes them so special? What makes you so special? You know? Then I remember one of the favorite things I like to do with my kids, especially when they're about three or four years old, Okay? Just old enough to communicate, but just young enough to be still pretty ignorant. You know, then they're super curious about life, right? They ask you a million questions, okay? And when I was a young dad and they would ask me questions, I would be a dutiful dad and try to answer as best as I can, right? I could do that for about like a minute and a half and I get bored. I'm like, okay, this is not working out for me. Okay, I can't do this rapid question thing. So what I did is I ended up making this question more fun for me. And I do that by answering the question in a way that may or may not be true, Okay. So, for example, my son asked me, he said, why is the light bulb light? You know, the truth is, I don't know. Something would do electricity, heat, filaments. I don't know. You electricians can answer that better than me. I'm too lazy to Google it, okay? So I say, well, what happens is when you switch the light switch, there's an electromagnetic pulse that goes up to the wire. And within the filament, there's these baby uh, firefly larvas that's hibernating. (laughs) 
And when the pulse comes, it wakes them up out of hibernation, okay? And then they wake up and their butts light up, because no kids, you say butts, they laugh. Their butts light up and they just start flashing everywhere and then that's, you, that's how you get light. But then once you turn the pulse off, they, they hibernate back asleep and then the light dims again. You know, you, the key is this, you throw enough jargon there, they're like, uh, I, think he's, I think he's being truthful there, okay? Meanwhile, my wife has a horrified look on her face. <laughs> We're at the point right now when my kids ask me a question, after I answer, they look to my wife to see if I'm actually telling the truth. Because I'm pretty good at the poker face thing. Just throw jargon there. They, they can't tell. Okay. My wife thinks I'm damaging them long terms. In about 10 years in the encounters, we're going to know whether this is damaging them or am I building memories. So... I'm not even joking around, okay? Sean knows because he, he's been in my household. I've told many stories I'm very proud of. Here's my point. Here's my point. I have fun with my kids. Here's my point. The best thing about kids is that they are a blank slate. You can mold them to so many different things, okay? You can tarnish them with fear, anxiety, and hate and treat them like victims. The whole world's against you. You're a victim. Or you can teach them about truth, empowerment, the truth about God, and that God has called them to great things. You can mold and shape these kids. Notice what Jesus said about these kids. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. In other words, the child's mind hasn't been made up. So he's open, he or she is open to accept new paradigms, new ways to look at the world. So when I grab my son, I say, son... Marriage, you know what marriage is all about? Marriage is about you laying down your life, giving of yourself to the other person. My son's not going to be like, well, that's not what the rom-com said. He hasn't seen the rom-coms, okay? My son's not going to be like, well, that's controversial, okay? Or people is not going to like that. He's not going to debate with me. You know what my son's going to say? He's going to be like, okay, dad, sounds good. Got it. That's how marriage is. You see, Jesus cares so much about this attribute, this childlikeness about kids, because he recognized hearing the truth is not enough. You have to embrace it. You have to accept it. You have to live according to it. And kids, childlikeness says, Dad, yes, I'm going to receive it. I'm going to live according to it. I'm going to mold my life to it. So here's my question. To those of you who consider yourself mature, educated, experienced, successful, in the middle of all that, is there still room for God to rock your world, introduce new revelation of God's kingdom to you? Now I'm going to talk about concept of wealth and riches. You guys are very familiar with the story. It's about the rich young ruler. Verse 17. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running down to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, and Jesus talked about the Ten Commandments and whatnot. The man says, I've done all these things. Verse 21, looking at the man, here's the key. Jesus felt genuine love for him. Everything Jesus is going to say next is not about testing him. It's not about correcting him. It's because Jesus loves him. Out of love, he said this. There's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad, for he had many possessions. 
And Jesus ended up having this interesting dialogue with his um, disciples. And then verse 28, Peter then spoke up. We've given up everything to follow you. Peter is saying, hey, look at us. Look at what we've done. We're not like that loser. We've given it all to follow you. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who's given up houses or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, property, along with persecution, and in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. So here's the deal. Jesus is giving us clarity on the idea of wealth. What does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to be rich? Now, status quo of the day and today, we think rich, we think material possessions. I think that way. If you ask me who are the richest people in the world, I would say, you know, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, guys like that. I'm not thinking spiritual wealth. When you think wealth, I think money, I think property, I think bank account. Most people think that way. I remember a couple years ago, I saw this movie called Crazy Rich Asians. Anyone ever seen this? Okay, it's actually a pretty good movie. And um, the movie is about crazy rich Asians. Um, it's about these really, really wealthy uh, Asians in Singapore who own land from the very beginning, and they are so wealthy, uh, you don't even know who they are. I mean, that's how wealthy they are. And um, it was just, it was an interesting story. And after I watched the movie, I was taking a shower, and that's when the Lord often speaks to me. And I was just kind of dialoguing with God a little bit. I was like, God, what is it like to be this rich? I can't even comprehend being this wealthy. What does it look like? And the Holy Spirit said, you have no idea what true wealth is. He says, what if, what if you are actually this rich and you have no clue? In other words, you have a, such a misconception of how God sees rich, richness and wealth and success. See, I want to be very clear right here. This teaching on the rich young ruler, Jesus is never teaching that we should be poor. He's inviting the rich young ruler to be rich. He's inviting every single one of you to be as rich as you can. Now, the difference, the clarity is he simply wants to redefine your definition of rich and wealth. Does that make sense? And he tells us exactly what this means in verse 29. That you have surrendered dear things for God and for his kingdom. Now, for some people, that means money, like the rich young ruler, okay? Because wealth and money and material goods for him was probably his identity and his provider. It was probably his anchor to the kingdom of this world. And he, unless he separates himself from this anchor, he could never separate from the world and enter into the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Now, for him, that was material goods and money and wealth. What is it for you? If you want to be rich, you need to separate the anchor from this world so that you can enter into God's kingdom. For you, it might be a codependent relationship. It might be a career that you have worked your whole life for. It might be an ideology that you were indoctrinated in. It might be a habit or addiction you have a hard time giving up. How about this? It might be your need to be in control. How about for the business owners? I'm going to tell you right now. It's giving up your business and saying God is the new CEO of my business. Or how about this one for all the parents? This anchor could be, severing this anchor means that you have to trust and surrender your kids to God like we just did. Lord, my kids belong to you. 
It's painful to give up these things that anchor you to the kingdom of this world. But in the middle of this discomfort, in the middle of this pain, I want you to remember the clarity that Jesus came to bring to us. His goal is to not make you poor. His goal is to make you, to make you rich. We have to remember that. And notice what he promises when we surrender to him. What do we gain in return? This is what he said hundreds of times in houses and properties. Okay, so for some of us, the richness does mean material possessions so we can bless other people. But he also meant, talked about hundreds of times in relationship, great, awesome spiritual relationships. And then he mentioned the greatest wealth of all, okay, eternal life. You know, if you look at historically some of the richest, most powerful people in the world, Genghis Khan, dynasties, the emperors, the pharaohs, they have it all. They consider gods. But after they have everything, what do they look for? What do they search for? Eternal life. There are stories of Genghis Khan at the peak of his power, sent people to go out there and find secrets of eternal life because he longs for eternal life. There's emperors in China that they have everything. And they send scouting trips to find eternal life. The richest people could not purchase eternal life with everything they have. And Jesus says, you will have eternal life. Eternal life, the greatest wealth of all. So the question I have for you, the honest question for you. Based on the parameter we just established, are you rich? Are you rich? Look at yourself. Am I rich? And the, and the question is, I'm not sure. Then I want to ask you, do you want to be rich? What do you need to do to become rich in God's eye? Amen? All right. I'm going to talk about suffering. Now, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He knew what was coming ahead of him. In verse 33, he was very clear with his disciples. He's not playing around. He said, listen, we're going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Jesus is redefining the clarity we have on suffering. Now, suffering is seen as a bad thing, Okay. Amen to that. I don't want to suffer. <laughs> I don't want you to suffer. And I definitely don't want my kids to suffer. Okay? And on a mega high level, yes. Okay, we have the heart desires of new heaven, new earth in our hearts. We don't want suffering. I get that. But the problem is we are not there yet. We are in the battleground right now. Okay? In the middle of this battle raging, okay, Jesus wanted to give us a clarity that suffering is not only necessary, suffering is good. So this is the clarity he wants to bring us. Romans chapter 5, verses 3. Paul says, not only so, but we also glory in our suffering. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now I want to share just a quick story from, from the father's perspective on suffering to help us understand why suffering is good. You know, my son came to me. He's nine. He's in third grade. He came to me um, two weeks ago. He said, Dad, I don't want to go to school anymore, okay? I just don't want to go to school. It caused me anxiety. There's some kids there I don't want to interact with, blah, 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 okay? Basically all the reasons why anyone don't want to go to school. <laughs> and for me... Because I hated elementary, middle, and high school, I had such a terrible experience. When he shared that with me, it triggered me. 
Okay, I have flashback of my terrible experience. I had such great anxiety that by the mid, by the end of middle school, okay, I had such digestive stomach issue that I was just. I mean, now they call it irritable bowel syndrome, but back then it was just called misery. Right? I was so miserable, and I just remember my experiences. And the last thing I want is for my son to go through that. So my instinct is to come to his rescue. What can we do? What do we need to do? Blah, blah, blah. And very quickly, the Holy Spirit reminded me. He says, slow down. Time out, Andrew. Time out. Who would you be if you didn't go through this experience? And I realized, man, all the, I don't even call it suffering. Let's call it discomfort that I went through. Forged me and molded me to be the man I am today. I have to push through things back then. I remember studying from these tests, the anxiety I feel, I have to test them. I mean, just all that stuff helps me to become the man I am today. I'm able to push past things that many other people wouldn't, okay? I would do things that many other people wouldn't do. Now, if I came in and just took that experience away from my son, I would be robbing him of the forging experience that he may need to go through to become his own man. Does that make sense? So in this moment, I thought, man, is this, I got to weigh this. Is this true abuse and, and, and that he's going through is not. He's going through school like everyone else goes to school. So quickly I realized, you know what, this discomfort or suffering he goes through is good for him. So I'm, no, I'm not going to come and intervene. What I am going to do is I'm going to lend him my strength by telling him my story. I'm going to encourage him. I'm going to tell him about the, the lessons I learned. I will encourage him before school. I will pray with him. I will encourage him after school. But I am not going to come in and intervene. See, that is the heart of a father, a good father who allows his kids to go through stuff. This is why God allows us to suffer sometimes. And this is the same reason why he allowed his own precious son to suffer on the cross. Now, I am not saying we should ever chase after suffering. You don't need to chase after suffering. We chase after Jesus. If you chase after Jesus, suffering will probably follow. Okay? But when suffering comes, when discomfort comes, what is your perspective on this discomfort? Can you embrace it like Jesus did? So here's my question for you. Are you may not be obeying God like you are supposed to because deep in your heart you don't want to suffer because your perspective on suffering is skewed. You don't want that discomfort, so you are not exactly doing what God's called you to do. That's the question I have for you. Then Jesus addressed the important issue of leadership. You know, I'm not going to get to too much of this verse, but basically James and John come to Jesus and they said, hey, can we sit on your left hand and the right hand? In other words, can we be like in, in places of authority when your kingdom comes? And his disciples start arguing. They start saying, I'm better. Who's better? And Jesus sat them all down and said, hold up, hold up, time out. You guys got this all wrong. Verse 42, he said, you know that the rulers in this world lord over their people and the officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. I'm going to give you clarity on leadership. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. 
See, when we think leadership, when we think who should be the captain of this team, who should be the president, we think we want the smartest, <clears throat> we want the best, we want the tallest, we want the best looking, the most charismatic. Did Jesus talk about any of that here? No, he didn't. His qualifier for leadership is who's going to be the number one servant. So if my son's going to enter into leadership, I'm going to say, hey, time out. Are, what, why are you doing this? Well, I want to do it for more influence. Well, I'm not saying that's bad, but why are you doing this? Are you looking to serve? This is crucial. You know, in America, we have this idea of public servant, right? Now, I'm not saying they are acting this way, but this idea of our governing officials being public servant is revolutionary. If you look at history, you look at the emperors and the pharaohs and the kings and whatnot, they think they're gods. They think they own you common people. Your land, you don't own it. The kings own it. You owe debt of taxes and uh, tributes to them. They're not public servants. They own you. So where do we get this idea that our governing officials, our leaders, are supposed to serve us? Comes from Jesus right here. If you're a leader, you're supposed to serve. And I can't emphasize this enough because somehow when we get put into leadership positions, when these government officials get put into leadership positions, they forget and they think they're better. No, Jesus said, if you want to be first, you need to be their slave. So here's the question for you who see yourself as leaders. Does the people who follow who you lead, you're supposed to lead, do they feel like you are serving them? I'm not asking if you feel like you're serving them. Do the people you're supposed to lead feel like you are serving them? Let's not forget this important qualifier for leadership. Finally, oh, by the way, if you don't know that answer to that question, you might want to ask them, okay? Do a survey. Do you feel like you're being served by me? I would encourage you to ask that question. All right. Finally, Jesus addressed the crucial question of desperation. Desperation. Verse 46, when they reached Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet. Many of the people yelled at him. But what did he do? He only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and he said, tell him to come here. And Jesus ended up healing him. Now, how did Bartimaeus get Jesus' attention? Now, yes, he yelled, but I'm sure a lot of people were yelling. It wasn't just that he yelled, but he yelled with desperation. When people tried to silence him, he only yelled louder, have mercy on me. You know who else in the Bible was desperate? There's a woman who was bleeding her whole life. In the Jewish culture, it means you're unclean. You've been living for years under the spell, the stigma of being unclean. And you saw Jesus. She saw Jesus, and she was going to risk it all, okay, to touch the hem of his cloak. And Jesus stopped right there and restored her. She was desperate. There's a group of friends, and they're buddies, but there's one of their friends who got paralyzed. And they say, we got to get him to Jesus. Jesus was surrounded by a group of people. They couldn't get to Jesus. He was in the house. So somebody had a great idea to say, let's climb on this roof. Let's bring this paralyzed guy with us, dig a hole through the roof, and lower him down to Jesus. That's as ridiculous as it sounds. But they were desperate. And this paralyzed man started walking. 
And to me, the most, to me, the best illustration of desperation was found in Matthew chapter 15. There was a Gentile woman whose daughter was possessed by demons, and she wanted Jesus to heal her daughter. She was desperate. Oh, if my daughter was sick, I would be desperate. And Jesus literally ignored her. Look in Matthew 15 yourself. It's a crazy story. But through her desperate pleas, desperate over and over again, desperate pleas, Jesus healed her daughter. Here's the clarity that Jesus wanted to bring us. This is probably the most important one of today. If you want Jesus' attention, you need desperation. See, the problem is we see desperation the same way we see suffering. We don't want it. We don't want suffering. We don't want desperation. We look down upon desperate people. Desperate people are weird. They don't follow social normal cues. They're kind of wild cards. They got nothing left to lose. You're a little scared of desperate people. I get that, okay? But over and over again, Jesus answered the calls of those who are truly desperate. Do you guys know why? It's because desperate people is ready to change. They are truly ready to change. You know, when I shared earlier about my up and down relationship with my, um, my wife now, my girlfriend back then, I was really struggling. I was really struggling. I didn't have the identity, the courage I needed to truly pursue her correctly. I was in pain, but I wasn't desperate yet. And someone mentioned and said, hey, you need to go seek counseling from Pastor Ron Sr., Pastor Ron's father. We call him Bishop. He found the church, okay, with Pastor Carol, uh, with a bunch of desperate people, okay. They found this church. And this is my literal response to this person who counseled me to go see Bishop. I said, I'm not going to go see Bishop. Only really messed up people go see Bishop. True words coming out of my mouth. I was not ready to change yet. Two months later, I was hitting a wall. I was about to lose Debbie. I was sliding towards desperation. I remember I made a point with Bishop. I sat in his office. Before he even said a word, the Holy Spirit reminded me. He said, remember what you said? Only messed up people see Bishop. The Holy Spirit said to me, you are absolutely 100% correct. You are messed up. And are you ready to change now? True story. Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who needs a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And after meeting a bishop every week for several months, I brought Debbie to meet with him. She was desperate. I was desperate. And through these meetings, I found the courage and the identity I needed to pursue her. And our relationship was completely changed. Here's the deal. Do you despise desperation like I did? Do you see desperation as a curse that's to be avoided at all costs? Or do you truly see desperation as a gift? That desperation is what catches God's eyes. Maybe God is wanting today to give you the gift of desperation. I hope you don't think desperation is beneath you, okay? Because Jesus says, this is what I am looking for. So, today's the day. If you feel trapped, I'm going to tell you, you're probably in a good place. If you're resisting desperation, God's edging you towards desperation so you can truly change. And you've just been resisting it. I'm going to say, stop it. 
Stop resisting. Allow desperation to grab your heart, to rapture your heart so you can truly change. Amen. Hey, we would love to pray with you if that's where you are. If you are desperate for a touch of the Lord, we would invite you to come up. We have elders and pastors and other people up here. We would love to pray for you. If you are desperate for a touch of Jesus, we would love to pray for you. If you got healing in your body, we would love to pray for you. Amen. You guys have an awesome Sunday. Stay desperate for Jesus. Love him. See you guys next week.